so much for joining us today. Um, we, are, we are joined by Angela Fautenberry of 413 Farm in Mays County, Oklahoma, and we're really excited to learn from her and hear about her today. Um, she is also going to be a speaker at Regenerate 2023, um, which is our conference that we hold on a yearly basis with HMI and Quivira. Um, if anybody would like tickets, please go to regenerateconference.com. There you can get tickets to learn more about Angela um, and hopefully gain some insights into how you can you can uh, use some of her tips in your own operations. So again, that's regenerateconference.com and um, we will hope to see you there. So Angela, if you want to start off by just giving me a brief introduction of yourself so people know you know who they're who they're hearing from today. Yeah, you bet. Um, I am out here in Oklahoma and I bought our farm in 2016. So um, I haven't been farming too long, but long enough to learn some, some lessons along the way. I grew up on family land back in Texas and started with laying hens when I was 10 and the farm life has just kind of stuck with me all these years. So here I am out here trying to find my way forward with my own enterprise out here in Oklahoma. So, you know, your journey began farming at a young age. You run a successful farm called 413 Farm. Can you share with our audience how your early experiences on your uncle's farm influenced your passion for agriculture and led you to establish your own farm? Yeah, my uncle uh, is shocking. When I bought my own farm in 2016, um, my uncle, when I was a kid and I was 10, he built me a mobile range coop and it was tiny. It was just enough to fit in our, our backyard, um, in the city. And that's where I would raise hens, um, as a little kid. So when I bought my own land and saw this trend of mobile range coops take off and the Salatin shelters and, um, the Siskovich shelters taking off, I just, um, was thankful to have had that early experience with pastured poultry and rotating through the pastures. Um, so it's just been, it's just been kind of ironic to see that so trendy nowadays, having that been my roots way back 30 years ago. So your, your farm's known for its focus on regenerative agriculture and you follow Joel Salatin's intensive rotationally grazed pasture management style. Can you tell us more about the principles of regenerative ag that you implement on your farm and how they contribute to the overall health and sustainability of your operation? Yes. Um, when I was looking to turn our farm into a, a profitable enterprise, I studied Joel Salatin's books. I also went to his schools and um, studied all the YouTube videos that are out there and just really wanted to dial in what those practices looked like. And so here we, um, we, we graze the chickens and then the cows come behind and then we hay those same fields. We run the pigs through the forest and we've just really duplicated what Salatin has taught us all these years, um, just on a smaller scale. I've got 40 acres here, at least another 80 to run the poultry on. 
Um, but we have seen, you know, when, when you add the poultry, we've got grass much longer through the season um, than we would without. So we've seen that um, added hay production and extended seasons once you layer the chickens before the cows. So and you guys have pasture chicken, pork, beef, goat, and lamb. And that's a huge amount of diversity for, you know, the amount of acreage that you're running. So yeah. what challenges and rewards come with that approach? And how, how do you, how did you get, get the understanding that you would be able to raise all of these different species on that small 40 acre farm? And obviously you have some leased land now as well, but kind of walk me through that was, you know, was, the, and I know you said the leased land is, is mainly for the poultry, it sounds like. So, yes. so you're doing most of the other animals mentioned just on 40 acres. Yes, we do have a smaller scale with the, uh, we run turkey seasonally. Um, but the, the, when we first bought our land here, OSU had a hand in us getting started in, with sheep. They saw we had a lot of kids and felt that was probably the better way to go than with cattle so the kids could be involved and that's just kind of stuck so my daughter is 17 she's an ag at school with ffa so sheep and goats are her thing um, not only does she raise them here for meat but she also shows them through the ffa program at school so um so that's kind of her enterprise she keeps those profits to expand um her flocks she's also asked to take over the turkey flock so um, with her being 17 and her passion and drive, I've really let her just take that and run with it to see um, how she does and, and kind of fuel that passion um, she has within her to, to make these enterprises work. And it's been interesting to sit back and, um, you know, watch her take those losses in the brooder and learn how delicate turkey is and um battling predators in the brooder is half the battle <laughs> it backs up to some forested areas and those black snakes just man they give you a run for your money so um it's been interesting just kind of, of supporting her as she takes on those enterprises but as far as for uh for my farm for my portion of revenue, I'm I'm heavily in pastured pork now. Um, sadly, with inflation and all that we've endured the last couple of years, um, I've had to shut down my uh, pastured poultry. So we're down to beef and pork here. Um, it's in Oklahoma. We have some challenges. We don't have any local processing, so we have to travel out of state. So with fuel expenses and everything else, the butcher price is going up, labor going up, um, feed, I mean, it just everything was against us and, and you don't have a very high profit margin anyway with pasture poultry. So it just really outpriced us um, with the logistics of us having to travel for processing. So, <clears throat> so I've had to close that, that was sad, um, but we're still hanging in there. And I've, I found some other profitable ways forward, um, even though we've had to close that door. 
So I, I know that uh, you're selling, uh, it sounds like a, lot, a decent amount of your products at, at uh, the Dallas Farmer's Market. Is that true? Yes. So um, I went to the Salatin School of Marketing and um, well, I was a stay at home mom for 17 years. And so this was my first enterprise. And so I just had all this fresh energy to in passion from watching Salatin. Um, I went to his school the fall of my first uh, season at the farmer's market. It was really inspired by all the, um, all the, uh, not the tips, but just all the experience they were able to share with us. So that fall, I went and knocked on doors throughout Tulsa to see if they would be interested in pasture poultry. So I went from my first year at the farmer's market to serving 26 chefs and restaurants, pastured poultry. And as I walked through these five-star establishments, I was struggling at the same time because the restaurant market is tough. It's year round seasonally. It's not seasonally, um, holidays, weekends, nights. I mean, it's on demand and, uh, it really kind of turned my home life upside down because of the volume and their work schedule. And I had a house full of kids. So I would walk through those restaurants and I was just trying to figure out why I was struggling financially to make it all work because you're selling at a wholesale price. But what I'm growing, they're turning into plates that are funding the lease payments on these beautiful establishments that are funding the salaries of chefs who are vacationing in Hawaii and Colorado. And, you know, they're, they're living a great life and I'm trying to make it all work. And so, um, I just knew I wanted to try my hand at being in their position. What can I do with my own product, cook and serve it and be on their side of the table? I want to go on vacation. I want to take my kids places. Um, I certainly deserve it. Salatin has always told us we deserve that life, that white collar life. So my chefs were incredibly supportive and showed me the way here in Oklahoma, we have very, very difficult and stringent health department rules that require pressurized water and hot water, which basically makes you a food truck. So uh, Dallas is home for me. That's where this all started. So I looked at the Dallas farmer's market rules and all they required to serve hot food was bleach. So I made the trek out there. I've got family there. All my friends are there. I made the trek and I was like, okay, as a farmer, I know I have to move the whole animal before I butcher the next. So what can I create that will allow me to break down the whole animal? And that's how bratwurst came about. I pulled the bacon and I'd grind the rest of the animal into bratwurst. And I went out there and basically opened a hot dog stand. And it's everything Salazen teaches us. You know, the, far, the customers at the farmer's market have their coffee in one hand, the stroller, they're walking the dog, um, you know, and they're not shopping, especially where we are. We're very tourist destination. They're not grocery shopping, but they're wanting to be out on a Saturday afternoon. So here I am serving them lunch. It's grab and go. It's cheap. They can walk and talk with it. And it just took off. It is such an all American food. Um, 
that it just, it, it changed everything. I was just shocked at how, um, you know, how profitable it became. I was making three to $500 per pig to sell it to a five-star establishment where I turned around, broke down that same pig. It was making $8,000 on one pig. Like it, it's eye-opening. It's eye-opening. I just, for whatever reason, $10 came to mind. And I was like, I'm going to sell these $10 per hot dog with grilled onions and a bottle of ice water to make it the consumer seem like it's a meal deal. Well, the ice bottle water is really like eight cents if you get a case at Sam's Club. But the consumer, you know, they get their water, they get their bratwurst and they're happy and they paid the $10. <clears throat> so um, then I kind of got bored with that after a couple of years. Like I'm ready to expand my menu. So then I went into cattle. I'm like, okay, well, I know again, as a farmer, I got to move the whole cow. So I would pull the prime steaks for the house. I've got a house full of boys. So I pull the prime steaks for the kids and uh, grind the rest of the cow into hamburger patties. So they're pre-made from the butcher, three to a package. It's one pound. And I was out there, fired up my grill, and now we do hamburgers. So um, you yield back I mean, 50, you can easily yield back on a cow, $15,000, depending on how, how big your cow is, whether you're, you know, what your how dialed in your production, um, is. <clears throat> so it, it's just, it's incredible the way forward, um, with hot food. Now, Having said that, I don't have a retail restaurant. I don't have that overhead. I don't have a leased spot. I have that farmer's market fee, which is super reasonable where we have a um, dedicated farmer's market pavilion. We're not a pop-up you know, place. So the city has a dedicated farmer's market and we have electricity and and I've expanded my mini past that. I was like, okay, what else can I do? Grab and go. Well, there's a local farmer that does corn. Um, so I started making a lote. I was like, all right, let's do street corn. So I'd boil the corn and have all the seasonings and people walk around. I mean, fair season, they're ready for some hot corn. And I, and then, uh, we had watermelon festival. So I broke down watermelon into watermelon cups and made, um, I think it was $500 off of four watermelons and four cantaloupes. So the, the value added side of breaking down what we're already growing, whether you're a vegetable grower or a, a rancher, um, it, it, you just, you have to try it. Like you, I try and beg the farmers at our market to heat up the grill and come alongside me. I'm the only farmer doing it, but no one, there's a mental block. No one will do it. Um, I wish they would try it. I really, really wish they would because the numbers there are just impressive and you'll find yourself on the beach soon enough. <laughs> so if you're a producer that's looking to find out how you can make up to what, what she's told us is up to 16 times more money on the same product, please come and join us at Regenerate yeah. here. <laughs> 
Um, November 1st to 3rd, it's going to be in Santa Fe, New Mexico. There's also a virtual portion to that conference if you're not able to make it to Santa Fe. Um, this seems like a wealth of knowledge that you may want to gain. Again, if you want to get tickets, regenerateconference.com. So that is amazing. I cannot <laughs> believe. I, I, like when you said 500, I was like, okay, maybe she's making 2,500. $8,000 from 500. Yeah. That is incredible. I'm, I am so impressed. I mean, more people should be firing up the grill, right? I mean, this is, this is incredible. Farmers are the best cooks. Like, have you ever met a farmer that doesn't know how to cook? No, like we are passionate about food. We do it for a living. We, we're out there raising food in some capacity and we just have a natural gift for cooking, but there, and we're working with the highest quality protein, fruits, and vegetables you can ever get your hands on. And for whatever reason, there's this mental block for farmers to get in the kitchen and, and feed the people that are there. I mean, we're both, we both have to stand there, you know, for eight hours, our market's eight to five, you know, you can be a cattle rancher and sell it one pound at a time frozen next to me for eight dollars for one pound or i'll buy that from you for your eight dollars i'll make three patties and i'll sell it for fourteen dollars each and just heat it up put it on a bun and hand somebody an eight cent bottle of water (laughs) wow i mean yeah there's a lot of lessons to be learned here this is really incredible (laughs) um so i hope folks come and check this out because i'm i'm really amazed um, many, I know a lot of farmers face challenges in, in accessing land, but even more so accessing suitable land near an urban center. Um, you seem to find the right land right near Tulsa. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about the journey and finding that right land and uh, how being close to an urban center, that how, how being close to those markets influences your business strategy? We are, um, I wish we were closer. <laughs> I do. Um share with new and beginning farmers who are looking because Salatin writes it in his books, um, buy the most land you possibly possibly can closest to the city, because that's where your buyers are. Gone are the days of them coming out to your farm and buying really anything. If you're too far out, Um, you can, I mean, you got to move those products, mostly one chicken at a time or one dozen eggs at a time. So you, you don't want to burn out on your commute back and forth to your buyers. So that's super important when you're thinking about where you want to buy Like it's glamorous to think about the hundreds of acres Um, of a farm, but the reality sets in how far away you are from your consumer. So really, if you're looking to get into farming, even if it's just a couple of acres, settle in as close to the city goers as possible, because that's who your buyers are. And that's how you protect your quality of life. And that's what keeps you off of the road from the daily commute from your farm to feeding the families that want to support you. So your approach to raising pigs is is pretty unique um, with them rotating through forested areas and pasture and contributing to the growth of new grass, of course. How did you develop this innovative approach and what benefits did you observe in your animals 
and the land through this practice? I learned it. I, I really didn't know uh, anything about pigs. That was a new enterprise for me. So I went to Salatin School of Pasture Pork, and he taught us how to graze them through the forest. One thing that I wish I would have learned early on was to set up a permanent fence and then break it down into, you know, rotating pastures inside of that. Pigs are, pigs push on your infrastructure. They're heavy, they're strong, they like back rub, and they're gonna rub on everything. Um, <clears throat> so I wish if I could take back how I spent my money in those early days. I wish I would have set up a permanent boundary of fencing and then built those movable paddocks within, within it. Um, that's one lesson I would have, uh, wish I would have learned early on, but I really just, uh, leaned on Joel Salton and his school and his teachings, um, to learn how to do that. Now I know he's got some online courses nowadays um, for people to look into to see how to make that happen. But um, my first year I went to his school to learn about it. And what kind of what kind of benefits did you see both in your land and in the animals from um, you know rotating them through the the forested areas as well as the pasture? They are good at um, grazing and turning over that land. So when we bought our farm, we had some overgrazed areas from horses that were previously here. And so running them through that, um, they turn it over, they do their job and rooting around and bringing back your, your native grasses, um, as well as, uh, running them through our hay, like where the cows graze through the winter and breaking down those hay, um, paddocks just like Salatin does so um you know you can't leave them too long in one place they'll they'll moonscape that area pretty quickly they're they're my favorite I would say of all animals to raise they really have a personality um very highly intelligent if they get out, you can call them. It's happened plenty of times. You can get out and they'll call them from the neighbors and they'll come running. Um, they're very, they're, they're joy to raise. And it's been one of my favorite enterprises. So when we think of bratwurst making, hog raising, a very male dominated industry typically, you know, as as a female in this industry, you've you've broken barriers and achieving great success. Can you share some of the insights on the challenges that you face and the strategies that you employed to overcome them as you've developed your business? Oh wow, um, I couldn't have made it without the gentleman in in my town and through my supply chain. Um, it is a male dominated industry, but I've always been highly respected by the gentlemen in my community and around me. Um, we've, they've been incredibly supportive. I work with um, multi-generational families that have taken me under their wing and have shown me the way and have given me incredible advice. Um, when there's things that are beyond my strength and ability, uh, they're a phone call away. They've, they've stopped everything to help me pull calves and, um, wrangle the pigs when they went on the other side of the freeway, you know, um, 
I really could not have done it without out these gentlemen within my circle of influence. They have been, uh, they've gotten me to where I am today and I'm incredibly thankful for them. They know that I express that, um, often we're all really great friends. They want to see me succeed more than anyone, you know, to find my way. We're all trying to find our way through farming in 2023. And we all have our shortcomings and we all support each other, but they have been a wealth of knowledge having come from multi-generations of farming. And um, man, this they've really made this journey fun. We're, we're all big family. <laughs> so. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Now, as you've grown your business, my understanding is not, not only buying other small pieces of land, but it sounds like also leasing them that are nearby you. Is that true? Yes. I do lease, um, some farmland here in town. Um, I am trying to look at maybe even leasing some, um, tiny homes that might be on deck for next year to start maybe a little agri-hood here. I keep reading about, I know that the tiny home community is uh, trendy right now, but I've got some space available that I'm looking at maybe uh, leasing and creating a farm centered community out here to see who else might be able to come alongside me and, and use this land in ways that I'm not maybe particularly gifted in. So I'm kind of, I'm excited for what next year holds to see, you know, um, where this farm will go from here. So talk to me about, you know, how, how did you approach locating other land nearby you? What were you looking for in that? Um, and how has being able to get those small pieces of land around you contributed to the growth and success of your farm? Because I know most people, when they're thinking about getting into farming, you need this massive amount of land. Yes. So I came along um, with Pasture Bird, who was also uh, Primal Pastures out of California. And what we all kind of started around the same time. And what I found unique about them was they never bought land. They leased everything. And, and so uh, that really resonated with me. By the time we met them, I already had bought my farm. But having seen them structure their enterprises through leasing, um, you know, I just networked with people in my town and um, my feed guy had land available and knew what I was doing because he was producing my feed. And so just through that networking, um, I ended up using 80 acres of his land that he grazes cows on. And so I just knew, you know, there's a way through watching primal pastures expand in the way that they did and to do it through lease land and not purchasing. Purchasing really kind of binds you up financially. You know, the land's not cheap. And if you could do it all over again and lease that land and free up, you know, your capital, that's the way to go. And there's farmers out there who will, who will partner with you to have the benefits of layering those enterprises. Everybody wins and it's just networking with the people around you. And in my case, my feed supplier had the land available and we all benefited from it. 
like a neighbors helping neighbors, right? Yes. So, yeah. So you, you have a background in culinary school and obviously you're, you seem to be using that very well in <laughs> value added products, right? Yes. Um, so, so how has that kind of influenced your practices and the products you offer? Anything that you learned in your, in your years in culinary school? Is there any unique culinary insights that you apply to your farm to table approach? No, I just really have this uh, heart for both, you know, for ser- food service and um, just leaning back on what those principles were to um, run a safe and clean, um, you know, food space there at the farmer's market. And I've been, I've hired employees and not all of that comes naturally. I've noticed not all of that comes naturally. So you've got to remind people and teach them, you know, uh, the basics, but, um, I found strength in hiring people because they do bring, um, you know, other, other, um, not views, but they, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Other perspectives and skill sets. Yeah. Their skill sets, they simplify things, they streamline processes that I wouldn't have otherwise thought of. And it's just, and they help make it uh, more smoothly. But as far as the food side, um, not all of that comes natural to some people I've learned, but I just, I view food so differently. You know, I look at it in its original state and it's raw state. And I'm like, how do I break that down and value at it and multiply it? And, and like the, with the watermelons, you know, the growers move semi loads of watermelons. And so I asked her, I was like, how much is this pallet? You know, those huge cardboard boxes that we see full of watermelons. I'm like, how much is that? And, um, she told me, I think it was something like $250 worth of product. And I said, well, you know, if you cut it down into two watermelons into these little trays, you see at the gas station or Bucky's or wherever, uh, that's $250 for just two watermelons. And she just, she had to sit down she had to think about that for a second. She's like, you're kidding me. Right. And I was like, no, I was like, so you can either sit here and sell these bins of watermelons, or you can break down two of them, put it on ice, serve these market shoppers who want something cold because we're in 115 heat index and make your profit right there. And I was like, now imagine what your revenue would be if you broke down every single watermelon in that bin to these farmer's market shoppers that are out here in hundred degrees. If you can move that amount of volume, right? Yeah. We, have- could about 10, we could about 10,000 people through that market on a weekend. And she's got the front stall. Like you have to go past her. And I was like, but she's never done it. She's never, and I've never done it. But our market manager was like, hey, and you've got the certified kitchen. It's watermelon fest. We break down some watermelon into watermelon cups. We keep having customers ask for fruit cups. I was like, okay. So I did it and I broke it down. And I told her what I got out of it. And I was like, well, you know, because I'm on the road a lot. Sometimes I get my own fruit cups at the Love's gas station. And it's $6 for a little canister. So I was like, well, this is farm grown. Let me go with $7. And I ended up with 83 cups. And so it's just, I, I just look at food so differently now. 
I, the last thing I want to do is sell it in its raw state. Like I want to value add that. And I mean, yeah. And it because as I'm having this conversation with you, it becomes quite evident how you can be successful with a small amount of land. If you're, if you have the direct to consumer relationship to be able to sell the value added products, I mean, how many watermelons would you not have to grow to be exactly. able to make the same amount of money? So therefore that smaller amount of land, you can, it, it can sustain you. Yes. When I was serving chefs, I was going through 200, 250 pigs a year. And that's a lot of work. And that's a lot of trips to the butcher shop. And that's a lot of feed. Cost. That's a lot of capital. It's a lot of everything. So when I turned to Broadwurst, my revenue was, I was replacing that with 20 pigs. When you go from 250 to 20, I got bored. I was walking around here bored. Now what do I do? I've got all this time on my hand. I replaced my income and I'm doing so much less work. That's the way. That's the way. So it, obviously you're very connected with your customers and it seems like, you know, just exactly what they want, what they're going to buy. I mean, I can hear you know, it's hot. They love fruit cups. Let's do it. You guys are right near the front. Sell your fruit cups. You know, the people are walking around busy at a market. They can't sit down and eat a whole meal. They can just hold a, you know, bratwurst in their one hand. How do you feel that you stay connected with these folks and their needs? And how, how like some, I mean, you've given quite a few examples, but just, you know, how are you adapting your value added products to meet those preferences and needs over time? So this is interesting. I started with pork with pigs because I had a lot of them out there and it's what I knew but there's an aversion to pork you get pushback on pork you know people have this mindset of how they're raised and just this they just they don't all you know take it so there's a learning curve because you have to teach your customers well this is pastured pork and this is how they're raised. Um, but aside from that, I was like, all right, I'm tired of battling this. So let me try beef. So I ran some beef bratwurst um, because we do have some Jewish, we have a Jewish farmer and we have Jewish clientele. And then there's just some people who just don't like pork. So this is interesting with my daughter on the sheep. She likes to keep all her used to grow her flock. So she had a, um, not a ram. What do they call them when they're cut? What, a weather. Yeah. She had a weather last year and she was like, well, now the show season's over. What do I do? And I was like, girl, all I run is bratwurst. <laughs> so we broke down her weather into bratwurst and my butcher had, um, talked me into not doing jalapeno cheese, even though Texans like jalapeno cheese. Um, but running it with feta cheese, rosemary, garlic, and sun-dried tomatoes. So we broke down that we got about 30 pounds back and I was like, well, this is lamb and where can you find a lamb bratwurst? Nowhere. So I upped the price to $14 per link. And I think off that 30 pounds, well, my butcher was like, please don't break down the, um, lamb chops, sell those raw. But I really didn't want to because I knew the value added profit. But I was like, all right, fine, I'll listen. So I sold those raw. 
um, broke the rest of it down. I think we yielded back $2,200 on one weather on one sheep. So I don't know if anybody else out there is making $2,000 on a sheep, but what we do. Sheep go, you know, even if you broke it down into cuts, you know, and didn't sell it as an entire sheep. I mean, what could you expect to make off of a sheep? I don't think not 2000. No, I mean, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Not 2000. I haven't sold sheep raw in so long. Um, Prices know exactly what those numbers would be. I just knew the only way for it. So I just got my goat. So my daughter um, raises the goats. So we just got that back from the butcher. <clears throat> so we're going to run goat bratwurst here in two weeks at the farmer's market. And at $14 a link, she was out there counting how many links she got back. <laughs> she wanted to know exactly what she's going to make off that. And she's telling all her FFA friends, she's like, whatever y'all don't want, you don't have to haul it to the sale barn. I'll buy all your sheep, all your goats. You just let me know. She's out there willing to deal <laughs> with her friends. To oh, bring <laughs> My milkman started raising um, sheep. And he was like, girl, I've got, I'm feeding some out. I've got some that he's, well, he's selling some out to the, he's got a hundred or so that he's selling out to the sale barn, but he's, he's wanting me to sell some through bratwurst at the market. So uh, that captivates your non-pork eating customer base. So you really just got to listen to them. They'll tell you, but when you bring on something unique, like pork or, or goat, they're, all in is it's something they can't find anywhere else and they want it they want to try it they're at the farmer's market they're there to see things they wouldn't find you know at the kroger shopping aisle so serve it to them angela this has been very very interesting and i'm <laughs> so glad that i got to to speak with you today and learn all about this um if you haven't heard it before Angela is going to be at our Regenerate Conference, Regenerate 2023. If you want tickets, go to regenerateconference.com. Um, it's going to be November 1st to 3rd in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We really hope to see you there. Um, you know, Angela, as an upcoming speaker, what, what message do you hope to convey to the attendees, uh, the attendees about, about what you're doing, about the importance of regenerative ag, and about the impact it can have on our communities and environment? Yes. Come on out and join us. I've got some slideshows that'll break down the cost um, to what I, for what I'm doing at the farmer's market. I'll give you um, all the different examples that I've tried and what those numbers look like. I'll be there to uh, answer health department questions to help guide you through that. And um, if you have a def difficult health department, I can give you our, our uh, health department information that you can look over and see if they can embrace that but um i'm excited to share our journey and the numbers and um walk alongside you as you roll up your sleeves and put on your apron start cooking what you're growing out there yeah absolutely so we uh we hope to see you all at regenerate and thank you so much for tuning in today yeah.